So thank you to John West. Uh, if you don't know John West, John West is a British uh, cannery. So like we have Cloverleaf, they have John West. And they have fishing all over the world and bring it all to Ireland, England, and uh, Australia. That one actually was an ad from Australia. Well, we're in the third week of a series called Blessed. We want to talk about how Jesus endured the worst so that you can be your best. He has blessed you. And we are going to look at, we've been looking at some of the unique ways that God has blessed us. He's blessed us so that we can be our best. Because Jesus endured the worst. Blessings. Our first talk showed that we are blessed with a need. We need a spiritual family with refrigerator rights, those close relationships with a few people. And we need a uh, we need to have barefoot buddies where no perfect people are allowed. We have that opportunity to be who we are. Last week, we saw that we're blessed with a desire to worship. God is the audience of one, and we have that inbuilt desire to worship him. And as we gather together, we're not gathering for entertainment. We are gathering to be the cast to worship God, to, to give him praise, and glory. Our worship is directed towards God in different ways in different people. And so we'll find, last we looked at nine different sacred pathways that people use to worship God. And uh, people are, it was interesting as people said, oh, I'm this, I'm this. And I'm going, good, I need to know that because I am not that way at all. And so I really need to help you be blessed. Today we're going to talk about another way that we are blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing. Now, to start off, I want a story about John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man of his day. Uh, he, if you know S-O, that's S-O, Standard Oil. J.D. Rockefeller, he is the one who was an oil magnet and was very rich. He was also a Northern Baptist, and we'll talk a bit about that. He had told a reporter one day that he was not really happy or satisfied. So the reporter asked him, how much money would it take to be really happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. He lived to be 98, and during the last 40 years, he was most predominantly a philanthropist, one who gave away his money. He developed the idea of foundations, trusts and endowments for charitable causes. So many of the causes uh, throughout North America are actually because of J.D. Rockefeller. As he was trying to transition, he was trying to discover how to be happy. He loved making money, but his philanthropy really was made unhappy later on. A few years ago, some people did a study that asked the question, how much do you really need to be feel blessed, to be happy? And so they asked people who are making $20,000 a year, how much do you need to be happy? And the majority said, about 35000 If I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy and fulfilled. So they asked people who made 35000 how much do you need? And they said 50000 They asked those who made 50000 how much do you need? And they said 75000 They asked those who made 75000 how much do you need? And they said 120000 Now across the board, basically the answer was to how much do you need? The answer was a little bit more. Now, as I look at my life, I'd have to say I don't have enough. My guess is that you don't have enough either. We don't have enough. The truth, however, is we have way more 
than enough. We have grossly more than enough. And you might be thinking, oh, you don't know my situation. I don't have that much. But you know, I look at people in the rest of the world. I remember when I was 18, I went on a missions trip to Colombia, and we went up into the mountains to, uh, to a village, and it was poverty. That has stuck with me throughout the years, and you know, I, it always bothers me, the inequity in the world. How many of you think that you have not only enough food to eat today, but you can find food for tomorrow? More than enough. Bedrooms, how many of you have more than one in your house? More than enough. You also have a toilet that flushes. We got four in our house, believe it or not. Four? Okay, this is good. How many screens do you have in your house? TV, computer, phones, put them all on. How many you got? More than enough. How many of you have uh, more than three outfits in your closet? Yeah, I had to buy a bigger closet. More than enough. God is my provider. I have more than enough. God is our provider. We have more than enough. When we recognize this, when we understand it, when we believe it, when we embrace it, then we will understand this blessing. God has blessed us. Therefore, we can be a blessing. Jesus' words are recorded in Acts by the Apostle Paul. You won't actually find this in the Gospels. It is Paul who says, oh, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is a verse that we haul out at Christmas time, isn't it? When our kids get so um, needy, and we kind of say, well, you know, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And the problem is, most of us don't believe it. We don't believe that to be true. How do I know? Because right now, I can read your mind. The dude's going to talk about giving today. Wish I'd skipped church today. Now, if you believed it was more blessed to give than to receive, your first reaction would be, Aha, this is going to be great. He's talking about giving. I love giving. Yeah, most people are actually going, oh, shoot, preacher's going to talk about giving. Now, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we really believe it? The reason why I know a little bit about this selfishness is because I struggle with this concept of having enough. During my life, I have found security in things and money and my bank account. Rather than acknowledging that God is my provider and that I already have way more than enough. My dad came from a family of 11. My mom came from a family of 9. And they lived through the 1930s depression in Saskatchewan. In their, that was in their teens, actually. In their, they were in school at that time. The per capita income fell by two, 72% in Canada. Hot winds, dust storms, and insects for seven years in a row. Everybody was hungry, inadequately clothed, ill-housed, poor health. They were on the dusty prairie trying to eke out a living uh, out of nothing for more than a decade. 
they develop this ability to make do. Backbreaking hours, hard work, harder times. Now, my mom told me those stories. My dad told me those stories and as they just telling stories about their childhood and stuff, and it was always through the Depression. They had that fighting spirit of the underdog, and that still speaks to me. You know, you watch the Waltons, and I go, I, I, I just feel it, man. The value of saving money, that was a good thing that was impressed upon my mind. But it also planted a seed of fear that affects me to this day. It's an unhealthy thing that I trust a bank account rather than trust in God. And I've had to pray, God, help me renew my mind with truth over and over again. And the truth of God is that the Lord God is my provider. Not the church, not the economy, not the, my bank account. See, our minds are like wax imprinted with stories. And it begins very early in our lives, and it continues throughout our life. And strong experiences press into our minds more deeply. So the high and pleasurable experiences, that they impress in our minds. And the low and struggling and painful memories also press into my mind, sometimes more strongly than the happy ones. The way we make purchases, the way we handle our money, can often be traced to our early experiences regarding material wealth. Susie Orman is a financial expert. And as a little girl, her father's business caught fire. He dashed inside, grabbed the hot metal cash register, and came out with scorched and seared hands that scarred for the rest of his life. That narrative emerged in her mind. And the narrative was, money is very valuable. It's worth endangering your life for. Never be careless about money. And that moment made her into a saver, a very diligent money manager. And she said, from that moment on, earning money, lots of money, not only became what drove me professionally, but also became my emotional priority. Striking events, critical moments create strong stories about the value of money and material things. So we can hear a false narrative, a false story based on a classic fear. I am all alone, and it's a false story. Outside of the kingdom of God, we are on our own. We must trust our resources. You are all alone, so either save like a miser or spend like a prodigal. It's fueled by fear. You're not valuable without possessions. Or save all we can to protect for the future. Our fears always outrun our money. And money will always make you happy and secure. It will impress others. It will give you power. These ideas are only partially true. Money in the bank does bring a sense of security. Money to pay our bills and more for a vacation brings us a sense of comfort. Having a really nice pair of shoes brings a sense of pleasure. The special Christmas presents bring a sense of happiness and joy. But truly, living in the kingdom of God is an answer to our fears of I am all alone. The kingdom of God runs on specific economic principles that contrast with the kingdom of this world. 
In kingdom economics, we have to realize God will provide for me. God will protect me and mine. Therefore, I am free to seek his kingdom. I am free to invest the resources he gives me in his endeavors. It gives a new perspective on money. God is out for our good. God has endless resources. We can never out-ask God. So how does God provide for our needs? Well, not by dropping money from the sky, not usually. Not by secretly depositing into our bank accounts. Sometimes there's little surprises there. We kind of go, oh, where did that come from? Most often, God moves money and resources through people. Always. Kingdom economics works that way. Now, when God uses money through people, he also gives it back to them. Money given on kingdom principles is never lost. I gave it, and God saw to it that I never missed it. You may have had it happen in your life. I've heard read stories about it, and it's happened in mine. You help somebody out, and they says, I'll pay you back, and you never get paid back. And sometimes you can get frustrated, and you go, he never paid me back. And then you ask the question, but did you miss it? Did you miss it? And you know, no, I didn't. But he should have paid it back. Did you miss it? When God uses our money, he also replaces it. I remember in, in college, all through college, um, we tithed. We gave our 10%, even on the days it was tight. And there were times, I, I totally forgotten about this story, but my wife says, well, don't you remember when we were $200 short for rent and there was money in the mail? No idea who gave it, no idea where it came from, but there was $200 in the mail. We needed it. God provided it. God is your provider. You have more than enough. You are blessed by God to be a blessing. So let me show you what happens when you are a blessing. God was talking to a group of people uh, who were rather poor, but they gave big. In 2 Corinthians it says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. When's the last time someone worshipped God because you were so God-like? Because of our generosity, people will praise God. You are indeed blessed. If you haven't noticed it in a while, you do have more than enough. You are blessed to be a blessing. Now, generosity is not about money or things. It's about an attitude. It's about our heart. One of Jesus' apprentices, Peter, he says it this way. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. To this you were called. What? It's my discipleship job description to be a blessing. That was what I was called to do. Yeah, it's part of our mission as a follower of Jesus. Being part of the kingdom of God, you were called to be a blessing. So let's talk about three big blessing mistakes, okay? First, we're going to talk about some mistakes. Big blessing mistakes. Number one, some people ignore God's blessings. It's important for us to understand that we can be very, very blessed. Some people are very, very blessed, yet they're whining, complaining all the time because someone else has a nicer BMW or... Ah, my Lexus is in the shop again. 
or I can't believe this is happening. One of my three air conditioning units is down and the AC guy can't get here till next Thursday. I can't go to my fifth bedroom upstairs because it's just too hot. We ignore God's blessings. Some people can be very blessed but never content and never truly appreciate their blessings. Our second big blessing mistake is some apologize for God's blessings. I've caught myself making this mistake. We're embarrassed by God's blessings. Maybe because we came out of poverty or we visited a country and we saw how poor people are. We see the lack in the rest of the world and we kind of feel guilty about what we have in North America. And so we have to realize God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who blesses. Blessings come from God. And then people can be incredibly embarrassed by it and said, you know, you've got a really nice house. Oh, oh, yeah, but let me tell you about the great deal I got on it. Because I've got to explain it. Yes, 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 we've got a pool in the backyard, but it came with a house and we just had to take it. Or, I like your shirt. Yeah, 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 it was 50% off, uh, red apple sale. We're embarrassed by the blessings of God. Sometimes we apologize for having something that God distinctly gave to us. We should be enjoying and praising God for the blessing. Then there's a third group. The third group hoard God's blessings. Studies have shown that over and over again that the less people have, the more they give, percentage-wise. The tragedy is that the more people have, the smaller percentage they give to any charity. And certainly God must look on and say, what are you thinking? Do you miss the point? Did you think it was all for you? Sure, enjoy some of it. It brings me delight when you do that, but all of it? But that's the way the more that you needed... <clears throat> Sorry. That's way more than you need, and I intended for you to bless someone else. That's what God's thinking. That's more than you need. I intended to give it to you so you could bless somebody else or help your church body fix the roof on your building. You're blessed to be a blessing. Let's not be embarrassed by it. Let's talk about giving big. But for, before we do, we need to acknowledge this truth. Nah, you're not going to like this one. <laughs> Tithing is not giving. Now, as we look at being a blessing to others, being generous, can I suggest tithing is not giving? I know I'm going to get pushback here. And maybe it's just it'll stimulate your discussion. It's something to think about, even debate about. It might shock you, but sometimes people say, and I've felt it over the years, I'm generous because I tithe. Actually, that is not being generous. What you're doing is just returning to God what's already God's. It already belongs to Him. It's not an act of generosity as much as it is obedience. Remember what Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. So what is a tithe? What is a tithe? Well, that's a real churchy Old Testament word. We throw it around a bit, but what is it? Well, it comes from the Greek word maaser, which means one-tenth, ten percent. You have ten twenty-dollar bills. The tithe is that 
first 20, the first fruits. And over the years, I have seen that God can do more with 90% than I can with 100%. But I do have to remind myself of that regularly. So a tenth of how much? Well, Leviticus says, bring a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The Old Testament was an agricultural society, so one-tenth of everything they had belongs to God. A tenth of your gross income. Not after you pay the rent and the car payments and all this. No, it's that first part, the gross income, 10% belongs to God. It's holy to Him. It is set apart. Notice that scripture doesn't say give the tithe to God. It says bring the tithe into the storehouses because it's already his. If you don't know, if you don't bring it in, you're actually stealing. Now, that's a pretty drastic statement. When I was growing up in our Baptist church down in Duncan, some of the teens were brought on as junior ushers. We would hand out bulletins. We would do the attendance counting. My brother and I would do that because we were the Geiger counters. (laughs) And we would help take up the offering, especially in the evening services. Wasn't anybody around. Grant and I would go. We'd take up the offering, and we we would go down to the basement. We would count the money and put it into the safe, handling the money. Never crossed our mind to take any of the money, but I heard other stories from other churches where they would take up the offering before the sermon and the young fellows would go down, they'd take the offering downstairs and many times they'd just ditch the sermon and go across the street and buy an ice cream during the sermon and come back just in time to blend in again. But one man writes that every now and then he wouldn't have a dollar for ice cream so he'd be carrying the offering plate downstairs and just reach in and steal one of God's dollars and put it in his pocket, buy an ice cream with the dollar God's dollar. He was eating stolen ice cream. How do you feel about that? Problem is, every time you don't tithe, you're doing the same thing. There's a very uncomfortable verse in Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. So, Maybe you're not eating stolen ice cream, but you might be driving a stolen car. You took the $200 that belonged to God and you put it towards your car payment. Maybe it was a stolen dress. You need to understand tithing is biblical. Jesus in the New Testament, he clearly affirms the tithe. It's holy, it belongs to God, it's his, it's not giving. If you want to call it giving, okay, let's call it giving. But the purpose of the tithe is to show that I put God first. It's a baseline. It's giving for beginners. It's returning to God what is his. So we start with the tithe, and many of you are already tithers, and you say, now, this is where it gets really, really fun to give way beyond the tithe. So let's continue to read in Malachi chapter 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. 
Notice again, he doesn't say give. He says bring the whole tithe. We're still not into giving. Put it all into the storehouse. The church is the vessel to reach the world. It strengthens my faith in God. Give it a shot, God says. Test me in this. I have sometimes encouraged my congregations over the years to take the three-month challenge. Try tithing for three months. Give 10% of your gross income in the offering and see if you miss it. And see if God continues to bless. And you know, I don't know how many times they come back after three months and they go, like, I got a raise. God replaced everything in it. Or, I didn't even miss it. It's not about giving to get more. We've got to be careful about that. Sometimes you hear the preachers, you know, God, give this and God will bless ten times. You go, okay, I need $10,000. I'll put $1,000 in and wait for God to bring the 10000 Eh, that's contrary to Jesus' teaching on money. In the name of Jesus, some people play on fears and desires. We need to understand kingdom economics. Earthly treasures decay. Heavenly treasures, investing in what God is doing, accrue eternal interest. Besides, you get almost no interest in the bank today anyways. God liberates us from the bondage that comes when we love money more than people. Jesus' apprentices were concerned about return for the kingdom. When we invest in what God is doing, there is a return for the advancement of the kingdom. However, kingdom economics are a challenge to put into practice. So lastly, let's look at three ways that you are blessed to be a blessing. How does it work? Number one, we are blessed to give joyfully. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, you give a little, you'll get a little in return. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. The word cheerful here is the word Hilarious, the hilarious giver. I get to give. I'm more blessed. It's like the greatest thing ever because I am more blessed. I've got more to give than most people. I am blessed because I get to give. There was a story in the church in Ghana I read a number of years ago. And you kind of think of uh, the third world countries. The British came in and they, they imparted British colonialism. And so the church in Ghana kind of had this heavy influence by missionaries from England of a century ago. So everything in the service was somber, serious, dignified, everybody in nice rows, except when they took up the offering. They had a very unique Ghanan spin to it. They would come in their very bright clothes and they'd get out of their seats and they'd all come up to the front to put their offering in the plate. But they would dance down the aisles and all kinds of things going on as they joyously brought to God. They gave, they were joyful givers. The only time in the whole service they were joyful, but that's where it was. You know, it's a difference between immaturity and maturity. Immature people want to receive. Mature people in the Lord, they love to give. When you were a kid, you were immature. What was Christmas about? Well, Christmas was about me. My toys. What's going to be in the present? What will I get? What do I want? What am I going to get? 
Now, as a mature adult, what do I get more excited about at Christmas? I really don't care about what they're going to give because I really don't need anything. But I'm giving to my kids and my grandkids. Now ah, I got something. What are they going to think? I love to see them happy with what I give them. It's more fun to give than receive. Jesus made a comment in his discussion about wealth. He uses a, a cultural idiom from that era. Makes little sense today. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here's what a modern spin on that would say. If you're tight-fisted, your soul begins to shrink. If you have an open hand, your soul will be vibrant. Through kingdom economics, Jesus taught us that we can be generous with our money and possessions, and generosity indicates that one is living in the kingdom. Our souls can be vibrant. We can give joyfully. The second thing you are blessed by God to do is joyfully and to give extravagantly. Give in such a way that it blows people's minds. Well, that was irresponsible. I mean, that was just stupid, generous. There was a woman in Scripture that did just that. She was forgiven by Jesus. She gave the most irresponsibly generous gift that you could ever imagine. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on his head, and some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the pure, poor. Pure nard, or spike nard, was an essential oil from the Himalayan honeysuckle. It was not cheap stuff. They did not sell it at Walmart. It was a good stuff, only found at high-end specialty shops. She opened this jar of perfume and poured it on the head of Jesus. Now, some of those present, they are ticked off. They're indignant. You stupid woman, you wasted this. It's worth more than a year's wages. A year's wages. And this woman sees Jesus and she just loses control and pours it all over him. She gives extravagantly. The most expensive perfume I found was Parfume Six. Six. It is worth 40, and when it was done a number of years ago, 47,500 English pounds. That is about $80,000 for one little bottle. It's created by the renowned British perfumer Arthur Burnham. The bottle was made with platinum, 24 karat gold, rubies, and diamonds. A very special box was constructed by Rolls-Royce coach builders, locked with a gold and jewel-studded key. Inspired by the Rolls-Royce Phantom 6, it was called Parfum 6. Who pays 47,000 pounds for a bottle of perfume? There were only 173 made. Michael Jackson ordered two. Mike Tyson ordered three. This woman gave a perfume worth a year's wages. I'm afraid if I was there, I would have thought like the other people. That was stupid. What were you thinking? Sprinkle some of it for effect and then sell the rest. She doesn't. She just pours the whole thing. And everybody's bothered by it. And Jesus says, come on, you guys, you missed the point here. 
What she did is one of the most beautiful acts ever done. And it'll be told about her for generations to come. Sometimes you just give like that because that's the kind of way God gives to us. You give extravagantly. It's biblical. It's beautiful just to be able to give extravagantly. So God has blessed you to give joyfully, to give extravagantly. Number three, you have been blessed to give sacrificially. To give in such a way that you're not giving out of what's left over. You're giving out of something that you wanted, something that you needed. You feel it. It costs you. In Jesus' day, he was watching people bring their offerings in at the temple. And this one little poor widow walks into church. She opens up her little purse and she pulls out two copper pennies. She drops them in the offering bucket. The rich people go, well, what's up with that? That isn't going to do anything, silly lady. Jesus looks and says, you guys missed the beauty of this moment. Here's what he said in Mark 12. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. She put in tomorrow's breakfast. She didn't have anything else. Bring it into your world. She reached under the mattress and took out all of her cash. She broke open her piggy bank and she gave it all. There was nothing else. So how do I give? I say, well, I need this much and I've got this much left over. I'll enjoy this much and I'll give this much. I give what I can. I give what's easy to give because I don't really want to feel it. I don't want to hurt. I really don't want to sacrifice. God is our provider. He's blessed us with more than enough. King David wanted to buy a field on top of Mount Moriah for an altar. The man who owned it says, I'll donate it to you, O king. But David responded, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So how do you love to give? Some of you love to give money because you have more than enough, and you're good at it. You love to do it. It brings you great joy. Some of you might be saying, hey, I don't have money to give, but I love to give my time. Maybe you like to paint beautiful pictures, and you give them. That brings you great joy. Maybe you like to mow yards and make them look beautiful, and there's a widow down the street who's 80. So you mow her yard, and you love that because it brings you great joy. Think about how you love to give. In the name of Jesus, it cost me something. God is your provider. You have more than enough. We can give joyfully, we can give extravagantly, and we can give sacrificially. May you become a church full of Christ followers, so radically generous that people look at you and they praise God in heaven because you've been a blessing to so many. You know, we may give a little of our time, we may give a little bit of our money, but it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his child, his son. That's how much he loved you. Jesus Christ, son of God, who was without sin, holy and perfect, died on a cross, gave his life, shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be changed, so that we could belong to the family of God. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how far from God you feel, all of your sins will be forgiven. 
As you call on the name of Jesus, you become one of his. He becomes your Savior. He becomes your Lord. Jesus endured the worst so that you can be your best. Fernando, come and pray for us. All right, let's pray. Father, makes us more like you. Makes us big givers, handling responsibly all the wealth that you've placed in our care. But to be able to do that, God, we will need to change our hearts. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would increase the blessing so much upon your people that we are compelled to give. I pray for those who are not blessed materially or not blessed financially, that they would still be able to enjoy being generous in different ways. Um, God compels us to trust you, to recognize just how blessed we really are. May we be wise stewards honoring you. Lord, we are blessed to be a blessing. So may the world praise you because your people have been generous. We pray for our missionary to Pakistan, Mark Naylor, as he publishes the new Sindhi and Muslim uh, translations of the New Testament. We pray for the people of the Sindhi that, who are dealing with the aftermath of COVID and the dev devastating floods that have destroyed the whole season's crops. We pray for our brother Papu and the local church who are endeavoring to help by being a help and a blessing to impoverished villagers. We pray for the real needs of our members and community. We lift up seniors as they struggle with health and finance and some of them even with loneliness. We ask for a, a blessing on our parents as they seek to care for and lead the young ones to, of our community. We plead for wisdom as we, we seek to develop some small groups so that we can identify and meet needs through healthy ministries. Lord, we continue to lift up our search committee as they, they get underway in our pastoral search. The pastor search committee has been trusted with the weighty responsibility to identify the man that God is calling to be the church's next pastor. This is, this is not an easy job. Pray that they would be unified and practice, and practice godly wisdom and discernment. Please help them with time and energy to do a good job. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would protect the search committee from all unnecessary and unfair criticism as they seek to do your will. This week, we specifically and earnestly ask for protection for the search committee and the board. Protection from the evil one who would seek to distract us from our mission. We pray against disharmony and, and unkind words and, and even wild goose cases that we, could, we can do what needs to be done in this time of transition. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, 
May we love God and love others and serve the world this week. Amen.